Please, brothers and sisters, turn with me in your Bibles to our text, which comes from Revelation chapter 21. We'll be looking at verses 22 to 27. Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 to 27. Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 to 27. Please then hear with me the reading of God's Word. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Now last week we both read and heard about uh, those things which John was shown by one of the seven angels with the seven bowls of the seven plagues. And we said that it was introduced to us in that manner for a particular purpose. And that particular purpose was this, to, to show us the final destination of two peoples. Right, those who belong to Babylon and those who belong to the bride. And so just as one of the seven angels with the seven bowls in chapter 17 comes to John and says, Come, I will show you the judgment of Babylon. Now in verse, excuse me, chapter 21, verse 9, the angel now comes to John and says, Come, I will show you. Only this time he's not coming to show him the destruction of Babylon. But what He has promised to show Him is the Bride of Christ. He has come to to show Him the, the wife of the Lamb. And immediately, as John is carried away in the Spirit upon a great high mountain, what is it that he sees? He sees immediately the holy city Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God having the glory of God. And with that, we see then that there is no ambiguity as to who the or what the holy city Jerusalem is as we discovered last week that the holy city Jerusalem is none other than the bride. The holy city Jerusalem is the church. It is the wife of the Lamb. And if the holy city is the church, if that is what is depicted for us, then everything that comes after that describes it likewise is not describing a a literal physical city like the Jerusalem of old, but rather this language is is figurative and symbolic as it describes the, the glory and the beauty and the preciousness of the church triumphant. Yet we also said this, that it's a glory that comes from God, isn't it? The holy city Jerusalem comes out of heaven from God. Which is why then it's an incomprehensible beauty. It's an, it's an ineffable glory. 
Which is why these elaborate descriptions are being used to describe the city's beauty because our finite language cannot capture the beauty of this city. And so metaphors is invoked to convey that beauty to God's people about God's people. We also read that we are like the radiance of a, of a rare jewel like jasper. But we also noted how in Revelation chapter 4, as John is taken before the throne, that he sees the Lord on the throne. And what does he say he has an appearance like? Like that of Jasper. And so he said that the church is able to be described in, in such terms and in such likeness. Because in glory, we are going to be before the One who sits on the throne. And it's going to be the radiance of His glory. It's going to be the beauty of His perfections that permeates the entire city and indwells all who live there. Now what is also obvious, we said, is that the holy city is described in temple-like language. The holy city is described in temple-like language. Like the temple vision in Ezekiel, in, in chapters 40 to 48 in the book of Ezekiel, John's temple has four sets of three gates, North, south, east, and west. And each of the three gates have a name of one of the tribes, of twelve tribes of Israel. Just as we read in Ezekiel's vision. Also, in a, just like in Ezekiel's temple, John sees someone who is going to measure the temple. Right? Just as Ezekiel sees that in his own vision. Uh, like the rectangular breastplate that we talked about last week. That the high priest would wear. That had the, the twelve jewels on it which uh, were representative of the twelve tribes of Israel, John now sees in his vision what? Those same twelve jewels adorning the foundations of the city's walls. Which makes us draw what conclusion then? That not only in chapter 21 are we shown the holy city Jerusalem, but also what we are being shown in Revelation chapter 21 is that the holy city Jerusalem is itself to be identified or equated with the eschatological temple of God. And yet, what part of the temple in particular? What part of the temple in particular? Well, listen to this description from 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house, to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So he's talking about the Holy of Holies. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high, and was overlaid with gold. And so the Holy of Holies in the temple in the Old Testament was what? It was a perfect cube, wasn't it? It was a perfect cube overlaid with gold. It's length times width times height. They were all equal. Look at verse 16 of chapter 21 again. The city lies four square. Its length, the same as its width. And and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and its height are what? Equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement which is also 
an angel's measurement. Now look down at verse 21. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. What do we see is true about the holy city Jerusalem? It's depicted as the holy of holies, isn't it? It's length times width times height are all equal. It's a perfect cube, just like the holy of holies in Israel's temple. And so the fact that John sees the entire city overflowing with the glory of God, with no part of it lacking its, its glory and its, its beauty as it shines forth over the entire city, ought to make perfect sense to us now in light of this understanding. Because where was the, the glory of the presence of God found in the Old Testament? It was found in the temple, right? But in particular, in the Holy of Holies. But whereas the high priest could only enter the Holy of Holies to experience the presence of God's glory, what we are told is that now as a kingdom of priests, we all are going to experience the presence of, of, of God's glory in the new heavens and the new earth. Why? Because we all will be walking in to the Holy of Holies. We're all going to be walking into the Holy of Holies, which is the entire city of God, where the, the entire presence of God floods the city. And with that, then we see how all of Scripture is not only meant to point us to Christ, but I want us to see this. All of Scripture is meant to, to point us to heavenly glory with Christ. Right? All of Scripture is not just meant to point you to Christ. It's meant to point you to heavenly glory with Christ, the consummation of which we see in our text today. Right? This is why Christ came. Right? To, to redeem you and I. Not just so that we would live temporarily for Him on the earth, but that one day we might eternally live with Him in glory. That's what our text portrays for us. This, here's the, the full realization of this here. Now, our text today is just a continuation of what we read last week. But there's a difference in our text this week in comparison to our text last week. Right, last week, what did our text do? In, in positive language, it told us what the temple was like. Here in verses 20-27, to 27, it uses negative language to tell us what it is not like or what won't be there in the city. And oftentimes, it's easier to do when we're talking about heavenly things, isn't it? I mean, this is the same language we use about God, isn't it? God is infinite. He's not finite. God is immortal. He's not mortal. God is immutable. He does not change. We speak about God in negative terms because we can't fully wrap our minds around what it means to be infinite. What it means to be immortal. What it means to be these things. And so likewise, we're going to see this today in our text. That it's going to be, this negative language is used to describe to us heavenly glory. And what it will be like. And so John really says it's going to be, there's not going to be three things in glory. And those three things are going to be our point then this morning. So the first is this. He says that, that there will be no temple in the city. So point number one, no temple in the city. Our second point 
that there will be no sun, moon, or night in the city. No sun, moon, or night in the city. And third, there's going to be nothing unclean in the city. Nothing unclean in the city. Look with me at verse 22 then once more, please. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So we are to understand this. It's not as if there is absolutely no temple in the New Jerusalem. We are to understand that there is no physical temple structure in the New Jerusalem. But this shouldn't surprise us, even if verse 22 did not exist with all of Scripture, we could come to the same conclusion. Understanding that physical temples were what? They were miniature pictures of heaven. That's what you see by how they were built, how they were designed, what was inside of them. They were meant to be miniature pictures of heaven. Right? They weren't meant to be around forever. They were meant to point us to heavenly glory. They were meant to be replaced one day by the heavenly dwelling place of God. Even as redemptive history progressed, what did we see? Think of John chapter 1, verse 14. That the Word became flesh and He dwelt amongst men, or He tabernacled amongst men. Think about Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, when the angel speaks to Joseph. What does he say to Joseph? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So what does that display to us as we think about redemptive history? That with the first coming of Christ, we already began to see the temple presence of God extend beyond the physical structure. Right? That is what we see. Then in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus says this, Destroy the temple in three days and I will raise it up. And in verse 21, we are told He was speaking about the temple of His body. So Jesus now is describing Himself even as the true temple of God. Anticipating the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70, what does Jesus say to the Sumerian woman at the well? And He says to her that one day, neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Why does Jesus know this? Ultimately, because God does not dwell in places made by human hands. Even Solomon understood this at the dedication of his temple. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, this is what Solomon himself declares. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less than this house that I have built. And then think about what we read later on in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. What does Paul say? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And so we see with progressive revelation, the, the presence of God right, moving away from a physical structure, and now what is emphasized is the presence of God going forth in the person of Christ and in the Holy Spirit after Pentecost. Right, this is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus Himself, the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so let us see that that concept 
of the temple with respect to God and the church is of, is of spiritual nature. It is of spiritual nature through union with Christ the head. Right? The church and all of its members. He is building up a, a spiritual house that one day He will dwell in perfectly. Throughout all of history, brothers and sisters, hasn't God dwelt somewhere in a particular or special manner? In a unique way? Hasn't there always been a place like that? The garden? The tabernacle? The temple? Let us see that simply it is in the new heavens and the new earth the whole holy city that He now will dwell with us in that same special manner. But instead of being in in one specific locale, instead of having to walk to one place in the city, it's going to be the entire city. Because the entire city is the holy of holies. This is also why the church can be called the temple of God because we will indwell Christ and Christ indwells us. We will be in the presence of Christ forever and Christ will be in our presence forever as well. And so no sanctuary is needed in glory because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, we are told, are it. Right? No physical structure is needed that we need to enter in order to approach God anymore. For in glory, Christ will fellowship with us directly and immediately. There will be no curtain There will be no veil. There will be no wall that separates us from God anymore. In glory, brothers and sisters, everywhere you and I step, everywhere we hop, skip, and jump, we will be in the loving and abiding presence of Christ forever. In glory. This is what we have to look forward to. The full enjoyment of these things. But let us not forget that to a lesser degree, we do enjoy this now. We enjoy this now. We are enjoying it this very day. Communion with God. He is here in our midst. He is present with His people by His Spirit. He hears our words. He listens to our prayers. He speaks to us by His Word. He delights in our praises. Right right now, we commune with God. Yet, it's not only here that we are to commune with God, is it? No, we are to have communion with God every single day of our lives. Now, because we are sinners, we oftentimes neglect it, don't we? We take advantage of it, knowing that He's always near, and so oftentimes we're careless about communing with God. But He calls us to live in Him and to to grow up in His grace every single day of our lives. And it is this grace that we experience now that ought to keep us coming back for more, but also longing for it all in full one day. We need to understand right now, God allows us to taste some of the sweetness of heaven. Why? Well, just like a child who sneaks in and grabs a cookie from the cookie jar. After he eats it, what does he do? He goes back for another and another and another. God right now allows us to taste the the sweet morsels of heaven, so to speak, so that we too will continue to go back to Him and back to Him and back to Him daily for all spiritual blessedness, knowing that He is the fountain of all blessedness. And we would continue to come back to Him until one day our cup shall be full in eternal blessedness with our Lord in celestial glory in the celestial city. 
Now in verses 23 to 25, this is what we go on to read. And, and the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Here is our second point then which describes what the city will not have. So we see here no sun, moon, or night in the city. That is our second point. Now, let me begin by saying this. Whether there is a literal sun and moon in the holy city, I don't know. Nor does it really matter. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is something far more important than, than telling us whether there's a literal sun and moon in glory. The point of the text is to describe for us the glory of God. That is what this is meant to describe. Now you say, well, how is, it, how is it getting at that? Well, let me use an example that hopefully will help us to understand it better. All of us, most of us, probably have a cell phone. And maybe even flip phones have it, but if you've got a newer model phone, you probably have a flashlight on your phone, don't you? Now... What would happen on a, on a bright summer day at the, at the peak hour when the sun is out shining brightest? What would happen if something were to fall out of your pocket and you wanted to look for it? Would you pull out your phone and turn on your little flashlight if you're outside to, to look for it? No, you're not going to do that. Why? Because the brightness of the sun is going to swallow up the little flashlight phone. Right? The, the brightness of the sun is going to consume it so that it is no good to you. What purpose does it serve? It will be unnecessary. You, you can't even tell that it's on because of the, the heat of the sun that is shining down upon the earth. And so too, brothers and sisters, the, the light-giving sources God created as created in finite things in glory, we are being told will be lost in the infinite God's brightness as His glory shines forth in glory. That is how bright the brightness of God will shine forth in glory. You will be able to see no other sources of light, but He who is the source of light. That is what it is telling for us. This is how bright His glory will shine. Think also about this, what is trying to be communicated by saying that there is no sun or no moon. Think about the benefits of the sun and the moon. In Genesis chapter 1, on day 4, what are we told? God created the two great lights. A greater light to rule by the day and a lesser light to rule by the night. And it was these two lights that have been essential, haven't they? For life and prosperity in all of human existence. Right? We need these two great lights in our life. Right? We, we need the sun for our crops and our plants to grow. Right? We need the, the sun for our own immune system, really. I mean, think about uh, vitamin D that you receive from the sun that, it's, that, is, or that is strengthened, that helps you in your immune system ward off diseases and, and fight uh, cancer and things of that nature. Right? The moon helps many of God's creatures do what? Be able to navigate at night? Maybe not so much nowadays, right? because we have street lights, but before that, the, the moon was, was very necessary for people and creatures who moved around at night. 
But what we are told now is that they are unnecessary in glory. Right? There is no need for the sun or the moon in the New Jerusalem because whatever benefit we derive from them, we will now derive from God alone who will satisfy our every need and provide for us everything in glory. There will be no need then for the sun or the moon. Now this language also comes right out of Isaiah chapter 60. In verse 19, this is what we read. The sun shall be no more, your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Now I want us to see this. This is important because there is a a change that occurs in how John now records this in our text. Because he substitutes in verse 23... Right, for the glory of God gives its light, and instead of your God will be your glory, and its lamp is the Lamb. And its lamp is the Lamb. So it's the light of God and the, and the lamp of the Lamb that fulfills Isaiah's prophecy. That God will be their everlasting light and glory. And in doing so, what does He do? He demonstrates again for us the deity of Christ. Right? The divinity of the Lamb. It's the same thing that we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, isn't it? Right there we are told that He that is Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. Last week, what did we say was the glory of God? God Himself. The glory of God is God Himself. God in all of His perfections. God in His glorious nature. God as He reveals those perfections to His people and creation and providence and redemption. But now let us see this, that, that Christ is the brightness of this glory. That it is Christ who is, the, who is the light of the people. Why is that so? Because Christ is God. Right? Christ is God. And being God the Son, He has the same glorious nature and perfections as God the Father, which He could not have unless they were of the same nature. Which is why Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. One substance, one in being. One triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is the glory of our triune God in the new Jerusalem that we shall dwell in. And it is the glory of the triune God in the new Jerusalem that shall beautify us. Likewise, we're told that by this light of God and the Lamb, In verse 24, the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. This too is a quotation from Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60, verse 3 and 5. We read this, And the nations shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Then you shall be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. Now in verse 6b of Isaiah 60, it says this though, They shall bring gold and frankincense, and they shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. And so, with this we see Isaiah's prophecy of the pilgrimage of the nations to the latter day restored Jerusalem is fulfilled when? In glory. In glory. What's described in Isaiah 60, John sees occurring in the New Jerusalem. 
But they do not bring earthly riches to the city, do they? No, in verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. What does that glory and honor describe? What does it, what does it mean to convey to us? What it means to convey is that when they come, they will bring themselves as worshipers of God and the Lamb. Right? They will bring themselves praising God and the Lamb. And we know that why? Because without exception, in the book of Revelation, when that phrase is used, glory and honor, or honor and glory, it always has to do with the praise of God. Always. Which means what? When they come to the heavenly city, when we come into the heavenly city, the only thing that we will carry in with ourselves is our praises. That is what we will carry in. Remember where we are going. The eschatological temple. In an earthly temple, what did people bring? Earthly gifts. When you go to the eschatological temple of God, what will you bring? Spiritual gifts. Your whole lives. Which is a spiritual sacrifice unto God. You will bring your spiritual praises. You will bring your whole being, body and soul, to the Lord. But this is why we need to see that, that praising God is our eternal destiny. That praising God is our eternal destiny. This is why the worship of God on the Lord's day is the most important thing that any single one of you can do. This is the most important thing. Think about it. In Matthew 28, as Jesus commissions the saints, He tasks the church with three things. Worship, discipleship, and missions. But brothers and sisters, only one of the three shall last. There's only going to be worship and glory. That's why we ought to see worship now as the most important thing that, that any single one of us can do. But what do we see, though, about this, this heavenly glory, this heavenly worship that will ensue? Well, we see it's going to come from people from all different parts of the world, isn't it? Right, right now, we're separated by our lands. But in glory, all of the nations shall come together to worship and praise the Lord. And it's at that time, brothers and sisters, that we can fully say with David in Psalm 133, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. This is also the why we need to see that the, the gates of the city will, will remain open and there will be no night. Because there shall be nothing in glory that impairs the unity of the church. There shall be nothing in, in glory that impairs the state of perfection and blessedness that you, are, that you and I are in as we dwell in the, in the brightness of the glory of God and the Lamb. I mean, why does anyone lock their gates to begin with? Why does anyone lock their doors? It's because you fear someone coming into your house, don't you? Harming you or your family or your things. But we need to see that in, in glory, day shall never cease. The lights will never be turned off. No one will walk under the cloak of darkness because there shall be no darkness in glory. Right In glory we will walk in the light of Christ who will be a lamp unto His people there. And it is forever there that we will dwell in peace and safety and security. This leads us to our third and our final point. And that point is nothing unclean will be in the city. Nothing unclean is in the city. Look with me at verse 27, please. 
but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Here I want us to see another clear indication that the holy city Jerusalem is identified with the eschatological temple of God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 23, verses 18 and 19, we read this, And Jehoiada posted watchmen for the house of the Lord under the direction of the Levitical priests and the Levites whom David had organized to be in charge of the house of the Lord. He stationed gatekeepers at the gates of the house of the Lord so that no one should enter who was in any way unclean. Nobody or nothing unclean could enter the earthly sanctuary. And they went to such extents that in Leviticus 20 and 21, right, that the priests are told right, how to separate themselves from everything unclean so that they would not defile the temple. In Leviticus chapters 11 to 16, the people are told how to keep themselves away from everything impure and unclean so that they might be able to approach the sanctuary of the Lord. Right? Everyone had to be careful to not pollute the temple, not defile the temple. But whereas in the old Testament under the old covenant with the with the temple or the tabernacle you had to be ceremonially clean to approach it in heaven we need to see this that that it's only those who are spiritually clean who can approach it and who can enter here also though is a is a similarity between the the earthly sanctuary and the heavenly one right the high priest could only enter the earthly sanctuary through the atoning sacrifice what is true of us in glory that, that you and I will only be ever, ever be able to enter the, the heavenly sanctuary through the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. And so here, brothers and sisters, in our text, we see, right, that, that heavenly eternal rest depicted for us in Hebrews chapter 4, where we're told that after Christ's work of redemption, He went and entered that rest. And now, brothers and sisters, it is only through the belief in the Son and His atoning work that, that you and I, by faith, can now likewise one day enter that rest as He removes all guilt and pollution from His people. And this is a wonderful picture. Uh, one that is depicted for us likewise in, in the book of Zechariah. If you'd like to, turn with me to the book of Zechariah. Otherwise, just, just listen. Zechariah is the, is the second to last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. We'll begin at verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Last week, brothers and sisters, who did we say the high priest represented? The people of God. What is Zechariah 3, verse 1-4 to an image of? 
Not just what is true of Joshua the high priest, but what is true of everyone who Joshua the high priest represented, all of the people of God. So that not only is, is Joshua's sin taken away, and not only is Joshua clothed in that righteousness, but likewise, brothers and sisters, all who come to saving faith in Christ, likewise have their iniquity removed, and Christ promises to, to clothe us in His vestments of salvation, and pure and holy are they. This is why we read in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So let us see this, that the only reason that we enter into glory and that we aren't cast out with all that is detestable before God is because of what Christ has come and done for you and I. This is why it excludes all boasting, doesn't it? Because your name is in the Lamb's book of life. Because God, apart from you, took His finger and wrote it there. And so He chose you for glory. And He will enable you to enjoy it forever. But He does so through faith in Christ. Which is why it is so important that the church does not forget its mission. Why it is so important for the church to continue to proclaim the name of Christ until He comes. Because it is through the proclamation of the Gospel that God works faith into the hearts of His people. And it is only through faith in the Lamb that you will ever enter into this holy city. Now, in our society today, true biblical Christianity is, is a despised religion in many ways. True biblical Christianity around the world today is hated. In many ways, the church bears and shares in the same dishonor as Christ. But I want this vision that we've seen today to, to both comfort and encourage us to, to continue to press on in the church's calling. Enduring the, the shame and enduring the embarrassment and enduring the, the slander, the mocking and the punishment and the persecution, realizing that this is what home is going to be like. Right now the church is full of weakness. It's a weakness because of sin. And because of that weakness, we allow sin to the church. Because of that weakness, we allow false teachers and charismatic men to step up into pulpits and declare that which is false. Because of our weakness in the church, there is slander and anger and pride and malice and jealousy and a lack of forgiveness and a lack of love. But let us see that in glory this shall not be anymore. In glory, God will remove everything that is unclean, everything that is detestable, and He doesn't just mean unbelievers. In glory, He will remove everything detestable in us. He will remove everything that is false in us. The things that we ought to hate now and the things that we ought to fight against now will no longer be. Let us rejoice that in glory you will never again think one evil thought in your mind that can harm your brother or sister in Christ. Right? In glory, in your heart will bubble up never again any covetous desire for what your neighbor has. Because Christ rids you of it all. He fills us with His glory and He makes us like Himself. There we shall escape this cruel and cold world. 
And there we will run to the, the warm and loving embrace of Christ for all of eternity. Right? Remember this, brothers and sisters, that the, the serpent entered the first garden and through deception he stained it. There will be no serpent in the eschatological temple of God who can stain it ever again. As we draw to a conclusion, I want us to to realize that all of these descriptions, all of these lofty illustrations and metaphors and figurative language that are used, are used because there is no tongue that can speak nor mind that can conceive of the glory that awaits you and I. Question number one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism we all know is this. What is the chief end of man? The answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It is that, brothers and sisters, those two things that we ought to focus upon while we live upon this earth. We have to ask ourselves, what glorifies God? How do we enjoy Him and pursue those very things? But I submit to you, one of the ways in which we ought to do this more than I think we do is we ought to glorify God and enjoy Him forever by spending more time thinking about glory. Because if if glory is who you are going to be and what you are going to be doing, then doesn't that tell us who He wants us to be now and what He wants us to be doing now? So let us focus upon glory and yet realize that God is so gracious in allowing us to experience eternity now still, doesn't He? Presently through Christ we enjoy Heavenly things, and we ought to thank God for that. We enjoy heavenly blessings, heavenly graces, heavenly conversation, heavenly enjoyments, and yet not perfectly. For it is not until we reach glory that we will experience them perfectly and forever in the new Jerusalem. And so, brothers and sisters, may may we long to get there. May we long to get there. May we long to see God bring to fruition what He has called and set each single one of us apart to be. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. It is such a joy to understand and to hear about and to discover what it is that You have awaiting Your people in glory. And that even now You allow us to to taste of it and to enjoy it. Lord, we pray that You would help us to not be negligent of our duty here on earth. That You would, by the work of the Spirit, continue to daily prod us to, to commune with You and to taste of the a little bit of eternity each day. That it might excite us to long for the day in which we will be with You forever. Lord, we pray likewise for anyone here who has 
not come to saving faith in Christ, Lord, that, that it's this vision of this glory that it only comes through Christ and His atoning sacrifice that, that all those who do not believe would have their eyes opened up by Your grace alone to see their need for. That, Lord, You would uncover their sin in their hearts and make them to see their need for Christ if they ever hope to attain heavenly glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray this day. Amen.